You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Like most pastors, I am sometimes called to minister with people who have lost a loved one. Sometimes the loved one isn't uh, a participant, a member of the congregation that I pastor, but a relative is, a grandmother, a cousin, an uncle, an aunt, a sister. One of the things when I, I do when I arrive in a situation like that where I'm a pastor to a family member but not already to the person who has passed away, one of the things I'll do is ask, does this person have a pastor or a church? The reason I ask that question is to find out whether or not I'm the lead man on the scene or whether or not I need to be in contact with someone else who is the lead person and play a supporting role of care to that pastor? Sometimes the answer is yes, and I step into the second position, or third as it may be, and invite another pastor to step in and be the lead uh, shepherd in that instance. Sometimes the answer is no. And the family will say, no, no, this person didn't go to church or have a pastor or maybe hasn't had a pastor in a very long time. Sometimes, in those instances, the answer will be quickly followed by a second sentence or a couple of sentences. No, he or she didn't have a church or a pastor, but... Some of you know what's coming. But he was saved a long time ago. No, he hasn't been to church in 20 years. But he loved Jesus and was saved. Now, any wise pastor will know that's not a good time to have a debate or a theological discussion over what the fruits of salvation look like. And let me say very clearly, I don't have the ability to examine anyone's heart and firmly resist making declarations about anyone's eternal salvation or lack thereof. That said, I find it interesting that we've gotten to a place in some parts of our church, the church, where we can think a person is saved and rightly related to Jesus when they have absolutely no evidence of that in their life. We've gotten to a place where we can declare a person to be in heaven even though they literally (laughs) lived like you know what. And it's not an isolated incidence in the years I've been in ministry. I'm surprised by how frequent I encounter the sentiment. 
The reason it's disconcerting to me is because the New Testament in general, and Ephesians in particular, consistently insist that believers, let me just read it to you, chapter 4, verse 1, live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In a variety of Paul's letters, the thing that he's after, the imperative he's insisting on, the commandment he's giving, the reason he's writing is to motivate and encourage and instruct and help the church live their lives Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day in a way that coheres or in a way that is consistent with the calling that Jesus has placed on their lives. You are called, Paul says, to be followers of Christ. You've been inaugurated into God's family. You have been given the sign of the covenant. Therefore, given the mercies of God and the grace of God and the kindness of God, bring your lives into cohesion with your calling. You never find Paul saying, well, you know, clearly you're saved even though I see no evidence of that whatsoever. Like the Bible does not speak that way. And so we come to Ephesians, and the entire second half of it begins with Paul declaring, and, in, and com, not declaring, but commanding, that his readers, whether first century or 21st century, live in a manner worthy of their calling. Are we called? Are we a called? Has Jesus called us to be His church, to be His body, to be His people, to be His followers? Has He called us? If so, what does it look like to live in a manner worthy of that calling? And the entire second half of Ephesians is instance after instance after instance. It looks like this. It looks like that. In this situation, there's all these situational kinds of things. If you're in a position where you're, you're inclined to say something that doesn't cohere with your calling, bite your tongue. That's how Paul deals with these things. And so we're looking at 4.17 through 5.2. And here, Paul goes through a variety of different particular instances of what it looks like to move from the old to the new. The not related to Jesus, but now related to Jesus. The old self, the new self. The not in God's family, but in God's family. And if you're called, and if you've responded to that by grace through faith, and if you're a part of God's covenant, then there's a certain manner of life that gives evidence to that covenant. If you're a part of God's family, then there's a character associated with the family. Such that for Paul, we could put it this way, God's children live out what God's power works in. Consistently, God works through His Spirit in the lives of His children, His family. And that inward work of His Spirit transforms the character of our lives inwardly and outwardly. So bottom line, Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 2. God's children live out what God's power works in. 
And this is really grounded in Ephesians 5.1, where Paul says, therefore, like we're going to look in detail at everything he's already said, but to sum it up, he takes all of that old to new, not this, but that, all of that is summed up at the end of the passage. Therefore, given all that I've said about the transformation of character that your life should embody, therefore be imitators of God. Whatever God's character looks like should be worked out in your life. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So this is about the family. This isn't about folks who aren't in the family. This is about the family. Be imitators of God and live in love as Christ loved us. So live out, Paul, like whatever it is that God's working in you, that needs to be lived out in your community and in your relationships and in your character. God's children live out what God's power works in. Now the whole thing is based on a massive contrast that runs all the way through this passage. He talks about the old life, and he talks about the new life. So let me read through a little bit of this and just kind of keep those categories in mind and listen for the differences between the old and the new. Right? A life not in the family of God versus a life in the family of God and the different character that each one of those lives takes on. This I infer, affirm, verse 17, and insist on in the Lord. Right? If you're going to live a life worthy of your calling, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I insist on this. You must not live like the Gentiles live. And we know what Paul means by the Gentiles. It's the non-Jewish nations who are marked by idolatry. They don't worship the one true God, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Who are committed to sort of climbing various cultural ladders towards more honor, no matter who they have to step on. We're very much focused on how I can get ahead and what I have to do. Those are the cultural values. So Paul says you don't live like them, and here's the sort of character of life that they live in. Futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. So if that's where you want to be, okay. Doesn't sound good to me. Here's what it looks like. Paul says, verse 19, they've lost all sensitivity have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, so various kinds of immorality, sometimes sexual in nature is typically what that term means. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So it's not just kind of, hey, there's this one thing over here. There's this full orientation of life aimed at what Paul calls impurity. So think idolatry. Think immorality. Think all self-oriented life. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's not the way you learn Christ, Paul says. So you see the contrast. Here's what they do. Here's what you're supposed to do. The difference is you know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, if you're saved, then it ought to be evident in the character of your life. What else does he talk about? He talks about immor immorality. He assumes idolatry. He talks about lust later on. Verse 25 and following, he will identify lying. He will un identify unresolved anger. Because maybe we think, you know, I haven't gotten caught up in the, the big sins, right? And we all know what the big sins are. But then he gets into this, like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Like, don't let, don't just let this, this, this fury and this malice fester 
for extended periods of time. Don't, don't let that sort of darkness get in your heart where I can't believe they said that about me at work. I can't believe they treated me that way. Or I can't believe my pastor did that. And I'm angry. And I'm just going to like go. I'm not giving it up. And so Paul says, Verse 26, be angry but don't sin. So get angry about the right things. But when you get angry, don't let it become this inward seething, like cancerous, destructive thing. And those of us who lose our tempers easily know what he's talking about, don't we? Formerly red-headed Irish-tempered people named O'Reilly know what he's talking about, don't we? <laughs> It's easy to just get set off and it's hard to repent, isn't it? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't make room for the devil. Which means letting the sun go down on your anger is making room for the devil. So Paul says if you want demonic participation in your life, hold on to your anger. We don't think about it like that very often, do we? If you want demonic participation in your life, you take your fury and your anger and you hold it as tight as you can. Paul says that's not the way you learn Christ. Thievery. Thieves must give up stealing. Instead of stealing, they should labor and work honestly with their hands so that they can share with the needy. You see that contrast. There's that self-oriented, I'm going to do what I have to do to meet my desires and wants versus I'm going to expend energy to care for people who need it. Radically different character. And it's not just for Paul about behavior modification. It's about character transformation because you, you can see that he's dealing with motivations. Like don't work hard just so that you can feed your family. Work hard so that you can take care of people who need help. That, there's a character transformation happening there. And it's the character of God that is coming to replace the old self-oriented character that he's describing. You think, maybe I haven't stolen anything lately. Have you been bitter? <laughs> and it's helpful to remember for Paul when he gives us these lists of sins, and this is a couple of paragraphs worth. These are not tools for throwing stones. Yeah. That guy held on to that anger for a long they are for a long time it's not to, it's not opportunities to throw stones they are opportunities for self-diagnosis does this identify anything in my life and heart that needs to be dealt with or transformed or surrendered to the holy spirit use your words like so paul says be rid of evil talk let's talk about that for a second no confessions right now. You can save that for later. But evil talk. I mean, how easy. Like, I don't think that's even a category for us. Most of us. When was the last time I confessed the sin of evil talk? We might lose our temper sometimes or say things we regret. I'm sorry that I said something that hurt you. But do we really, are we willing to sort of put the category evil on that? Because, hey, I did something I shouldn't have done is a different thing than declaring, hey, that thing I said was evil. 
And for Paul, that sort of thing is the sort of thing, like if we're not building one another up with our speech, chances are we're sliding into that evil talk territory. Now, that doesn't mean we can't disagree with charity and love. It doesn't mean that we can't critique or correct. But it means that our focus and our language is not aimed at destruction, but at wholeness and health and healing. Evil talk, bitterness, wrath, and slander. So Paul, again, like always, very equal opportunity here. Like nobody gets away from this guy. When he starts listing things for which people need to repent, somewhere on the list, all of us have to say, yep, got me, Paul, right there. All of us, pastors included. Put away from you all bitterness, verse 31. Wrath, anger, wrangling. <laughs> wrangling! You see that in church committees sometimes, don't you? <laughs> I want to get my way. I got an agenda I want to push through. Instead, Paul says, that's the old self, Paul says. That's the thing that Jesus came to take away. Crucial point, when Jesus died and had nails smashed into his hands and thorns pressed into his face, he didn't die just so that we could be forgiven and left where we are. Paul says he loved us and gave himself for us so that the old self, with its corruption and its deluded lusts, can be put away. Jesus didn't die just just to forgive our sins, he died to free us from those things so that they don't occupy, characterize, or control our lives anymore. That's Bible, folks. That's what it means for Jesus to love us and give himself up for us. Verse 24, be clothed with the new self. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and clothe yourselves with the new self according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you see the contrast, don't you? You've got the old self with bitterness and malice and idolatry and lust and greed, all these things. Paul says that's the old thing. Jesus died to free you from that. Life needs to be transformed to the new thing which he calls Christ-likeness, true righteousness, true holiness. And so for Paul, holiness isn't simply, well, I haven't done these bad things. Holiness is about the character of Jesus being reproduced in me. It's about God working something in my heart and mind and being that is then worked out in my life and relationships. Clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that new self is embodied in Jesus. If the cross shows us anything, it shows us a Jesus who looks not to his own interests, but to ours. Who suffers and bleeds and dies by torture so that we can not only be forgiven, but made whole. So that when we're dead and the preacher shows up at our house, our family can say, let me tell you about the life of faithfulness this person lived. Let me tell you about the way Jesus' character was embodied in her life. 
There's no buts in this funeral. Only clarity. Here's a life lived to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't mention baptism in this passage specifically, but our liturgical practices today create some context, don't they? As we think about movement from old life to new life, as we think about the covenant, he does talk about being sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, and that seal language is about ownership, and elsewhere in Paul's letters and in the New Testament, that kind of language is associated with baptism, so we're on solid biblical ground here. It's associated with the covenant signs, whether it's Abraham and circumcision or New Testament and baptism. For the children of believers, learning to live the new life starts now, doesn't it? Chances are, all of us can remember in our, when our children were infants and toddlers that that ugliness starts coming out pretty quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, they're cute, and they do funny things, but that self-oriented nature does not take long to manifest. They start out in the old column, don't they? For children of believers, however, we all want to begin from the earliest age, helping our kids be able to identify the old, dark, self-oriented, sinful self. We want them to know what it feels like for the Spirit of God to say, that's not from me. And we want them to be able to learn what it feels like and how it works to repent from their sin and honor Jesus. We share that across our traditions. That's what we want for our kids. We don't treat our children like they're lost, do we? We don't say, well, I hope you meet Jesus before you get to college. <laughs> we don't say, I hope you have a radical conversion experience later in life. We just want them to learn to follow Jesus from the earliest of childhood. We don't say, when you become a Christian, you'll need to stop lying when we catch them fibbing. I hope you never said that to your kids. <laughs> we say, because we're Christians, we honor Jesus with our mouth and we honor others with our mouth. We don't lie to them. Because we want to enculturate them into a life of Christian discipleship that starts in your home, and it's resourced by the church and the pastors. If you expect me or our staff to be the primary disciplers of your children, like get ready to be disappointed. Because we're, we're not with them <laughs> every day when they're you know, being selfish with their toys or lying to you about whether or not they clean their room or whatever it may be, or dishonoring you. 
or their teachers or like whatever it is. You're in a position to help them say, look, we're moving like this thing in you, this hard-heartedness, that's the old self. Jesus wants to free you from that. And your baptism means, John Max, Presley, that he has claimed you. That he loves you. That he has called you. And parents, it is your job and our job to help you teach them to say yes to Jesus. Don't wait to start teaching that. Don't hold off till later. Does everybody know what a boring testimony is? Or is that a new category? I remember being in high school, I was asked uh, to share my testimony at a summer camp kind of thing. May have been at Blue Lake, if you've ever been to Blue Lake. The youth pastor, maybe it was 14, 15, 16, why don't you share your testimony? And so I went back to my, 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 my room in the dorms, and I was trying to write some things out, and I pulled my Bible out, and I'm just kind of going through my life. And I started thinking, man, I have a really boring testimony. Like, there's no drugs. There's no, I'm 14, right? There's no drugs. There's no alcohol. I haven't been in prison. I don't have this radical Damascus road. I'm a clearly horrifying reprobate sinner, and then Jesus shows up and sets me free. We kind of say, that's a real testimony right there. And all I could come up with was, with was things like, well, my parents taught me to read the Bible. And they loved me and made sure that when I spoke unkindly to my brother that we read Ephesians 4.29 about evil talk and had to write it 50 or 60 times and things like that. And I mean, yes, there are issues, but it wasn't those like flagrant things that we identify with really exciting. The kind of testimonies you'll go out and you'll go like pay money to go to a revival or something in here, right? And I felt instantly convicted of that. <laughs> As if the Lord were saying, like, my faithfulness to you and my care for you is uninteresting and unexciting. Really? I've cared for you after your father died. That's not interesting to you? <laughs> I've provided for you in a variety of ways. I've entrusted you to the care of parents who love you and have taught you to love me. And that's uninteresting to you? And I felt convicted instantly. And let me just say this. I'm not denigrating Damascus Road kind of bad, like conversions I give thanks to God and celebrate that. What I'm trying to say is let's not denigrate a life where we just grow up coming to know Jesus. Like, I really want my kids to have boring testimonies. Anybody else? Like, like I hope John Max and Presley have the most boring testimonies in the history of the world, right? Yeah. My church taught me to love Jesus. I made sure I had a place to play that was safe with other kids so that we could learn and fellowship and feel like what a covenant community looks like. I made sure that I knew the gospel. They made sure that I knew the scriptures. They made sure that I 
knew when the church was at its best and when the church was at its worst. They made sure that I knew that the gospel was more than forgiveness, but wholeness. If that's boring, sign me up, buddy. (laughs) That's what we want for our kids. Our hope and our longing is that we're able to identify the flesh, the old self, the darkness, the sin early, and help our kids learn to walk with Jesus consistently, surrendering all of those things to the surgical knife of the Spirit of God. Our prayer is that if they do grow up and walk away from the Lord, that in His kindness, He will draw them back. But we'd rather not go through that if possible. Amen? So as we come, when we come to this as a covenant community, because we're committing together through our baptisms to make sure that we're all walking this path together, whether we're children or senior citizens, we are all committed to make sure wherever we are, that this is, this is the path. This is what band meetings are for, by the way, as well. I'm going to get together with four or five guys or gals, whichever the case may be, And just have some authentic transparency because I know they love me and they don't want me to go to hell. They want me to be whole. So they're not going to beat me up when I stumble. They're going to pick me up and pray me through and care for me. That's the family that Paul is describing when he says, as beloved children. But children imitate their father, don't they? We all know our kids imitate us. (laughs) We all know when they start sinning, there's probably something we need to repent for. (laughs) If you didn't know that, when they start sinning, there's something you probably need to repent for because that's where they learned it from, most likely. But children imitate their parents, and Paul calls upon us to be imitators of God, and that's possible because Jesus has loved us and given himself for us. And has claimed us and said, you are mine and I love you and I'm not going to let go of you and I'm going to care for you and I'm going to convict you and I'm going to work on you and I'm going to cut out the things in your life that are not like my life and I'm going to use your parents or your friends or your church community to do those things so that you can be whole. That's the work of Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you need to see, right, in this passage, the way the entire Trinity is at work. We're called to be imitators of God as the children of God, to live in love as Christ loved us, to put on Christ. And we are told, don't grieve the Holy Spirit with which you were marked with a seal. Seals in the ancient world are about ownership. Like If you've got somebody's seal on you, you're probably their slave in the first century Roman Empire. You get marked with a seal, somebody owns you. Christians are marked with the seal of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, partners in that covenant, part of His family. 
the whole Trinity is at work. God creating a family, Jesus through his death and resurrection, forgiving and restoring and giving the new birth, and the Holy Spirit is the consistent presence of God, not just alongside us, but now within us because we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, renewing us and enabling this movement from old to new. Like you can't go from old to new without the Spirit of God. And Paul's choice of words here are fascinating. Grieve the Spirit. Have you spent time thinking, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? First of all, we only grieve when we first love, right? We grieve when someone we love dies, and the depth of our grief is proportional to the depth of our love, isn't it? Like when somebody dies and we don't know them, we may be sad for their family, but we're not grieving a loss. And the closer that person is, the more we love them, the more we grieve when they're gone. So first things first, to grieve the Holy Spirit means the Holy Spirit is invested in us deeply in love. Moving us from old life to new life. From this previous sin-slaved life to new life in Christ-likeness, true righteousness, and holiness. And I started thinking, I thought, like, what does that mean? What does it look like to grieve the Holy Spirit? And I started thinking, you know, we've been talking about John Wesley in our staff meetings and read some of his sermons. Maybe he wrote something on this. And so I go to the, like, the John Wesley Bible Concordance website where it tells you like all the passages he preached on. I found out there was actually a sermon, which I'd seen before but hadn't recalled in the moment, called On Grieving the Holy Spirit <laughs> on Ephesians 4. And I said, you know what? I probably should read Wesley before I go talk about this and see if he has any wisdom for me. Because, friends, we don't have all the wisdom. <laughs> there are other people. Some of them are dead now. They had a lot of wisdom as a gift from God, and it's good for us to go back and see what they had to say. And I was struck by what he had to say, and I thought, man, this guy, first of all, he pulls no punches. I shared a quote on social media yesterday morning, yesterday morning, and if you read it, you know Wesley pulls no punches. If you didn't read it, I'm going to read it in a few minutes, so just get ready for that. It's coming, and it's harsh. Wesley said there's two kinds of sins that grieve the Holy Spirit. He's not talking individual sins, he's talking types found this immensely helpful for kind of thinking through what a life lived in the Spirit looks like. And he says the first one is this. The first kind of sin that grieves the Spirit is unintentional sin. He called it inconsiderate sin, which meant something different in the 18th century than I think it means today. But it's sins that, that we do not considering what we're up to. And Wesley put it this way, talking about these unintentional kinds of sins, this inadvertent if I've sinned inadvertently, I didn't mean to, I wasn't really, I just neglected something. Here's what he says. This It's a bit lengthy, but, but listen, it's, it's a striking thing. He says, quote, men are generally lost in the hurry of life. Anybody ever get lost in the hurry of life? Turns out that's not a 21st century problem. It was an issue in the 18th century as well, apparently. Men are generally lost in the hurry of life, in the business or pleasure of it. And seem to think their regeneration, that's their new birth, their new nature, will spring and grow up within them with as little care and as little thought of their own 
as their bodies were conceived and have attained their full strength and stature. You hear what he's saying there? Like, we can kind of grow without any effort. Like, I'm born and I grow and I don't have to put in any effort. Like, I don't think of eating as effort. I mean, I just really enjoy that. And so I do it. And I grow and, and my kids grow fast, faster than I thought they would. And here they... It seems effortless. They just do it. And Wesley says, if we think our spiritual growth is effortless like our physical stature, like red flag. Red flag. That was a pause in the quote. Here's, here, here's where he picks up. Whereas nothing is more certain than that the Holy Spirit will not purify our nature unless we carefully attend to His motions. One of the things I find helpful about quotes from 300 years ago or more is that they don't say things quite the way we say things, and it, it frames it somewhat differently for me. Do I attend to the motions of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is moving and at work. Am I paying attention? Or am I neglecting it? That's his question. Whereas nothing is more certain than the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will not, will not purify our nature unless we carefully attend to his motions, which are lost upon us while, in the prophet's language, we scatter away our time. While we squander away our thoughts upon unnecessary things and leave our spiritual improvement the one thing needful quite unthought and neglected. Let me, let me put some skin on it. Baseball season just started. I really like watching the Braves. The Braves are not the one thing needful. Surprise. <laughs> Fill in the blank, friends. Like, what's the thing that you give yourself to? This fall, it'll be football season again. Folks will actually be able to go to things. We're ready to roll, right? We squander away our thoughts upon unnecessary things and leave our spiritual improvement the one thing needful, quite unthought and neglected. Now I'm going to watch some baseball this summer. I'm pretty excited about it. Really looking forward to it. We're going to do that. The trick is not letting baseball become God. Or whatever else it is. Like, is it your job, your career? Maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's hunting, maybe it's golf, maybe it's reading. I don't know. You figure that out. You know your life. You know where the Holy Spirit digs in, or maybe you've gotten so calloused he doesn't so much anymore. That's called grieving the Holy Spirit. Told you, Wesley wasn't one to pull punches. <laughs> That's good for us. Really, really So these inconsiderate or sins are things we just don't consider. Man, it's been a long day, and I'm wiped, and I just want to veg out for a while in front of the TV or whatever, social media, and just, I need a break. 
Wesley would say, are you squandering away your time? Are you, as the prophet says, scattering away our time? Or are we focused on the one thing we need, and that is the life of Christ in the Spirit at work in our bodies? Are we paying attention to the motions, the movement of the Holy Spirit? If not, if we are neglecting them through busyness, or Wesley says, other pleasures, which is kind of a really big category, then we are grieving the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, we will not be embodying the life that God wants to work into his children. We won't be living out the power that God wants to work in. The power is the power of the Spirit in the children of God. And the Spirit works that into us so that it shows up in fruitfulness in every relationship, at home, at work, at church, everywhere we go. Imitators of God are people who are not grieving the Holy Spirit. Second kind of sin, Wesley said, is intentional, considered opposition to God. I know the right thing. I'm not going to do it. I know what Jesus wants from me. I will do what I want to do instead. Wesley says, this is a lot more severe. The other thing, like... <laughs> Like the spirit is grieved and we just kind of grow further away. This is kind of a Jesus, just take your business elsewhere kind of thing. And that is deeply grievous to the Holy Spirit. In this instance, Wesley says this. He calls these presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are indeed in the highest manner offensive to the Holy Spirit of God. They are instances of open rebellion. The willful sinner is not ignorant or surprised, but knowingly fights against God's express commandment and the lively, full, and present conviction of his own mind and conscience so that this is the very standard of iniquity. We don't want to be there, friends. We don't want to be there. I know that Paul said not to let the sun go down on my anger, but he didn't know how angry I was going to be tonight. I know the scripture said to give up bitterness, but Paul didn't know what he said about me today. I know the truth. I will not do it. We don't usually frame it that way. It's typically just this grueling, hard heart. Just, I'm going to do what I want to do. Red flag, friends. That's a red flag. Instead, we want to be focused on the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Spirit is aimed, Paul says, at the day of redemption. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal of ownership for the day of redemption. The day of redemption is the day Jesus comes back, not to take us off somewhere else, but to raise the dead and institute his kingdom in all its visible sovereign fullness on this earth. Romans 8, Revelation 21 and 22, and a whole lot of other places too. The day of redemption, Paul says in Romans 8, is the day that our bodies are redeemed at the resurrection. That's the, that's, the Spirit is working us toward that day. We're sealed now. He owns us. We are His. He dwells within us so that He can bring us to the place where death is fully, finally, and defeated. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
when our bodies are raised. That's where this thing is going. Is the life I live now aimed at the resurrection? That's my question. Imitators of God in Christ are Easter-oriented lives. Jesus was raised. God's people will be raised. That's what we're aiming at. Wesley says that is the restoration of order. Like we live in a world now where people still die, don't they? And people still get sick and cancer, and we're grieving, aren't we, some of us this week, as we remember the Brooks family. And we hold them in prayer, and we give thanks to God for Cindy's faithful life. I had a chance to visit with Dawn and Robert a couple days ago. And as we sat on their back porch, Dawn remarked to me, so grateful that Cindy lived a life always aimed at Jesus. I think oriented was the word she said, Christ-centered. I love to hear that sort of thing said about the people I pastor. That's a life sealed by the Spirit and aimed at the day of redemption that's a life that doesn't grieve the Spirit of God, either through neglect or straight-up rebellion. That's a life that is in order, and that is being restored to order. And here's the thing, friends, that's happiness. Sometimes we pit holiness and happiness against each other. You want to seal your happiness? It's sealed in the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean everything's always easy, fun, and like, hey, we're having a great time. Sometimes it means like stuff has to die. But real happiness is not caught up in what Wesley called the busyness and pleasures of this life. It is caught up in the Holy Spirit. And when Paul talks about true holiness, when he talks about Christ-likeness, he is talking about the things in which true, deep, real, authentic, abundant happiness dwell and consist. That's where we want to land, isn't it? God's working something in His children. His character, His life, His wholeness, His healing, He's working that in his children. And if he's working that in us, then it is imperative that we live out consistently and comprehensively the very thing he is working in. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's what it means to be whole, it's what it means to be holy, and it's what it means in the end to be happy. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.